We will now return to the Gospel of John. And by encouragement, I thank Pastor Jason for finishing chapter 14. And we will now move on to chapter 15 in this retrospect. And albeit the chapter in some of your Bibles starts and what seems to be as a look of a parable from the master. I won't go as much far as that, but the and the analogous analogy that the master is using here, I think it is proper and it is apparent uh, that it could be understood as a parable. But nonetheless, we arrive at chapter 15, and for the sake of time, <laughs> we will be actually looking at the first six verses. Because if I went to the first 11 verses, you will be here for an hour and 40 minutes. And this sermon will be like the days of the Puritans. So with that being said and respected, we will now be looking at John 15 verses 1 through 6. It reads, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them up and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Let us look to the Lord our God now in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord. And we are mindful that you have allowed us to be here with faculties attached and able and healthy. And we would take this as worship unto you, Lord for such mercy and loving kindness you have for us to be here today to give glory to your son. We thank you, we love you, and we indeed praise you. And on this day, for your Sabbath day, may we take in the word that's being taught and shown. Be with thy servant as he feeds and teach your sheep. And be with them so that they may have a childlike love and a willing mind to continue to see that their master is not far, not away, but in him we move, exist, and have our being. In Christ, most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Therefore, my intro. You were recently introduced to the role of the Spirit when Pastor Jason was here in regards to the latter portion of chapter 14. And fairly so, our master displayed in particular of this new helper that was to come. Recall by the first portion of chapter 14, their hearts are troubled, knowing good and well that they will be losing their master, of which, upon his departure, he is providing them reassurance, peace, as you notice when you took to the latter portion of chapter 14. Therefore, of this assurance, what is he providing? He showed that a helper was on the way upon his departure. By verse 16 and 17 of chapter 14, the master states, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper 
that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Again, by verse 26, as it continues in chapter 14, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, in this same instance, in this particular chapter, our Lord and Savior makes other telling notes. For example, he denotes again from the beginning the peace. As it started with the chapter towards the end by verse number 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives as I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. And with this peace. The reassurance of his coming and going is significant. For though unlike the Jews. Though he told the Jews and he told them, I'm here with you a little while longer, but where I'm going, you cannot come. By chapter 13 and verse 36, he then reads then, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. It is because when we revive the chapter 14, he has to go prepare a place. For in preparing a place, it reads, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know, it's kind of amazing. All that the master is denoting to his disciples is a work to strengthen their faith. Now, we are naive people. In fact, when reading the Bible, we have some presumptions. For example, the apostles could do nothing wrong. Or, they just don't seem to be human. That's not the case. For if they were to be so, then why does the master have to calm their hearts? You see, the master is very, very courteous and very knowing in understanding our frailties. And his words not only provides comfort to them, but in our time of need, it should provide comfort to us. And I talk to you in this way because when I brought, and I do it on purpose <laughs> to see those who's paying attention, but nonetheless, when I bring to you those verses, when I give the ex exhortation, the commandments, it's also a little segue into the sermon. And the reason why is because many people assume or they purport, there's a $10 word again, that they love the Messiah. But in loving him, as you noted when you saw in chapter 14, he said, you'll keep my commandments. But then in keeping his commandments, it would be observing all and doing all that he commanded. So then when he says, by verse 28, that, and this is trying to bring this intro to a close, but by verse 28, in chapter 14, he said, I go away and I'll come to you again. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
The impact of the Messiah's words is important given the context to the individuals in the audience. Do not lose sight of that. I want to make sure that's very clear and apparent. The apostles in their day, especially remember I especially when I when it started chapter 14, I read the end of chapter 16 because the figurative language that was being portrayed by the master, they did not get it. So what makes you think all of a sudden you can hear what he's saying here and then presume that you've understood? The day they got it is after the spirit has come and equipped those men to write their letters and grow the church as is shown in the book of Acts. So when the master is speaking, he's speaking to them. The context of the audience is to them. But in his grace and mercy and love, the apostles who were moved by the Spirit was able to interpret his words and we're able to understand them today. The master denotes then that the faith of all his disciples, not just only the disciples that they are there, but then those of the future, it should be strengthened and it should be fed. For he denotes to them by verse 29 of that day, now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. The working was to them so that in the strength of their faith, they're able to work and move the church to where it is. Now, he departs from the place, and it's very likely, given the transition from chapter 13 onto 14, it may have been the upper room, the guest room, where they were residing for the Lord's Supper. But given that chapter 15, we do not have a setting, and John does not denote this, it is not without key to understand. This whole chapter is now devoted to the word of the Messiah. In fact, we have no interruption or insertion or discussion from the apostles on to the master. There's no questions being asked and there is no answer by verbatim and information to be sent to them. So by chapter 15, we have the direct words of the master himself. So John is showing us here. Let's take into account what is being displayed and spoken by him. By verse number one, he denotes, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, the pairing between the father and his son is now being made analogous to a vine and a vine dresser. Those who are familiar with this term and by context clues, you can see one is over the other. By definition, the vine dresser is an individual who prunes and trains and cultivates vines. And vines, as you know, are those of a particular um, working that produces fruit. 
And so in the master denoting that the father is the vine dresser, let's put two and two together. The father is pruning, training, and cultivating the vine as which the master is and denoted as the root. And be it as it may, it is pretty simplistic or somewhat able and easy to see that the two are in harmony. You have a vine, and it needs to be pruned. Now, it's amazing because we've seen earlier the angst of the Jews, because to them, the notion was always pressed on them again and again that the master was making himself to be equal with the father. You know, do you recall John 10 verse 30? I and the father are one. So then what do we have here as which the master then makes analogous that the father is the vine dresser and he's the vine? Well, it's again here to show the master is showing his humiliation on earth. For by this display, he's conveying to his disciples his submission to the father's hand in the covenant of redemption. And as you can see, indeed, him and the Father are indeed one. But the Master is showing the work of the Father and the ministry in the church to show it is only through the Father by which we can come to understand the Master and his role in the work of redemption. Now, as we get to verses 2 through 6, I'm going to segment them into two parts. With verse 2, we'll look at 2 through 4, 2 to 3, because by this particular verse, he's now explaining the prior, which can be seen as an axiom of sorts. And as the master continues, he denotes the workings of himself as the vine and also the father as the vine dresser. It reads, every branch in me that does not produce or bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You already are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Here the master states the union in this submission to have the father's hand move as it pleases. And being that we, the church, are the vines upon those vines we are noticing those particular branches, and I mean this segue in regards to the vine and branches. I think a lot of times people try to try to be pretty schematic and <laughs> look at the sheer terms of the words, but the analogy here that the master is trying to show is upon this vine and as it branches out, it needs life from a source. And what's apparent is to those who claim to have ties with the church, it is impactful to see how those branches operate. You see, there are those branches that bear fruit. And there are those branches that lair bare. But the Father's hand is on both. That's apparent here. 
In fact, he denotes it. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So, like I've done previously, I'm always going to do this again to be consistent. What is then the message he's showing to the disciples here? Even among them, there are branches that were cleaved to him. For example, Judas Iscariot. Did he not walk with the Messiah? Did he not partake in the Lord's Supper with him? And yet, by chapter 13, it is showed Judas was not clean and that he will be taken away. But then what about the remaining 11? They are two branches that are attached to the Messiah, but they bear fruit. But then, it's like I brought to you earlier in the introduction. Can you see the Father's hand in pruning the branches so that they will bear more fruit? Yes, the apostles are human. I bring you back to chapter 13 by verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, oh, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. How about Thomas? By chapter 14, by verse number 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. How about Philip? Again, going scroll down the line in chapter 14, by verse number 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is and me. You see, there was no chance, and there is not, as the humanists would say, well, fate will have it, that these men were not genuine in their responses. But as like the chapter 16 showed by the end, the master spoke in figurative language, and so they were compelled to answer in the way they were compelled to answer. But why? The father is the fine dresser. And he's pruning the fruit, no matter who you are, upon the length of that branch. I'm sorry, of that vine. If you are a branch on that vine, and you're one of his, and you bear fruit, he must prune you so that you will grow in your faith. Remember, chapter 14, uh, by the later parts, at verse 29, when the Spirit come. They will have an understanding of belief. All this that's transpiring, it will come back to their memory. Especially how John showed once the Messiah was glorified. All this came to their forefront and they understood why.
it all had to happen the way it happened. As our master then denotes to them, what is the apostles now denoting to the church? So again, it's like I said before, the master taught his disciples, his disciples are teaching us. And it's interesting. It shows again, the father corrects the ones he loves. And amazing how the Messiah is the bridge between God and man. Him and his own analogy used here. He shows how he's also the proper bridge between the Old and New Testament. I love this term again. From the harmony of the old to the new. Proverbs 3 verse 12. From whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Now to the new. Hebrews 4. I'm sorry. Hebrews 12 verses 4 through 8. You have not yet, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For by verse number six, for those whom he loves, he disciplines, and he scourge every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his son, his father does not discipline? But by verse number eight, if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, you are then illegitimate children and are not sons. It's amazing because some people might be saying, what is God's will for my life? Believe it or not, it's pretty simple. At the end of Ecclesiastes, love God and keep his commandments. But then in not keeping his commandments, what has to happen? There are consequences. And that's okay. In fact, sometimes... We're even kind of scared of what will come down the pipeline. And if you are, or somewhat timid, that's okay. Just consider the fact that if he is showing you discipline in this world, it's a lot better than trying to get discipline and address in the other. This now properly allows us to segue to verse number four, because then our master denotes and shows that those who bear fruit, this is not taken of their own accord, for the master denotes that he is one with the father, and they also must be one with him. Right, verse four, abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, the apostles realized that the master had already discussed and conveyed to them, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. And he conveyed the role of the spirit, a helper, that he, the spirit, will be with them forever. So therefore, their attachment to the Messiah and the master is by the spirit 
in the spirit alone, who, as the spirit shows, will have them attached as those branches that bear fruit to the true vine. Because it is in the vine they find life. It is in the vine they bear fruit. And as the vine dresser prunes that branch, it shows the working. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is all in harmony. By verse 26 again, by chapter 14. Note the harmony of all three, but the Father, I'm sorry, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is also an understanding of why the Master stated, I will not forsake you. The apostles, and this should be shown because they're also human, should have some reassurance little by little as he's speaking. If I, if you recall, by verse 18 in chapter 14, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And therefore, if they, if you were to come to them, how would it be so? Well, because of the sake of time, I can't read Acts 2, but you know how that impactful miracle shaped the foundation to the church. Individuals who were speaking different languages were seeing and understanding what those individuals, the apostles, were preaching. And then upon this, remember in chapter 2, they broke bread and they gave and they sacrificed and did this in the third as one body. They were showing an example taken for what their master told them. So, as which the master conveys to them to abide in me and I in you, again, we have to see what is now the apostle's message to us and how we are to abide in the master. Well, I look to the one who wrote this gospel book and we will now look at his first epistle to his churches. 1 John 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John shows, if you were true to abide in him and you know his commandments and you know the example he set forth, well, we have been commanded to walk as he walked. In fact, not just as he walked, but also consider how you were to operate amongst your brethren. Continues down the line in chapter 2 by verse number 10 in verse John. It states, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. And to put this all together, not so much the, chat, uh, the sermon, but just to put this point at a closing. It just amazes me how it appears that when you abide in the master and you seek him, I mean, I don't want to say sincerely. I'm not going to use that word because I think sincerely gets drunk. There's a lot of sincere people in Sheol. I mean the aspect 
of a want, an affinity to say, I really do love him and I don't want to offend him by violating his law. John wrote towards the end in chapter 2 of 1 John. He wrote what he wrote about abiding because he knows when the master taught them. In particular, I'm bringing this example in Matthew. When he talked about the foundation and having two different foundations. And if one is built, as it were, on sand, anything that comes, anything that goes, anything that comes your way, you'll be blown away by. But if it's built on him and his words, no matter what comes, you will stay strong. John states, let's start at verse 26 in John, first John chapter 2. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, anointing, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it's taught to you, you abide in him. He's consistent. The master is consistent. Ugh. He continues, now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame at his coming. That's what makes us different from the humanists. When and however it might transpire, when history ends, they will shudder. But if we're alive to see that day, Note what John is saying here. When you know you abide in him, you take it with rejoice. That's why, and I made, I made a very clear point about this, but that's why when we consider that aspect of he was talking about that love, that love for him, is that when he tells you he's going to do something, when he says for you to do it, you rejoice at it. Psalm 119, verse 2. I bring again to your attention, John 14, verse 28. You've heard that I said to you, I go away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. You will rejoice at the workings of the Lord. You know, it's amazing how we see the work of his hand in our own lives. But sometimes do you consider that it is his hand that's doing the work? Or maybe you might be thinking, it's by chance. Or as the humanists say, as fate will have it. Was it fate that you were here today? Was it by chance that you woke up this morning? No. That was his mercy. 
because your reasoning for being here today had a very clear point in your faith. If you look around, not many are sitting next to you. And you may know individuals and loved ones who are missing and may not be Christian. Consider that, that you had a change of heart and not to offend him, you are here today. As we now set our course to verses five through six, it allows us to segue to a conclusion. By verse number five, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, the language is similar and used to verses two through four, but the caveat here now is then put on verse number six, for there is now an eternal judgment rendered on those who do not follow the Messiah, let alone to abide and purport that they abided in him. Now, I want to bring your attention first to the latter clause of verse number five, because he denotes, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, by just sheer looking at the word and understanding the pure language, it can be seen that they are told they are helpless. But what kind of helplessness is this rendered to? Is it a physical aspect of being held, uh, being held helpless? Is it that they cannot breathe, let alone have their faculties intact? Well, we know we have humanist friends. We have humanist acquaintances. They're living. They're functioning as human beings with all their sensory organs intact. How is it so that they don't believe in the Christ and yet they're continually walking? I mean, just with those particular mercies that they've been provided by having their faculties and having their health restored to them, they still continue to make blatant attempts at violating the law of God. So is that what the Messiah is speaking of? They can do nothing. How about to the, though, I'm sorry, to those who claim Christianity in particular, the antinomian Christians who found that though they may say in their mouth, I love Jesus, yet they're found to be hypocritical to what they claim. Are they not healthy too or or fully functional as well? What is this indication of nothing that is applied when the master says, apart from me, you can do nothing? It is very much this. If individuals are looking at noble achievements, they're looking at what's considered to be grander feat of human strength and human will and taking to death the conscience of their own minds so that they can render good works and humanitarian favors to human beings. So much so they're upholding the second, the second tablet of the law. It means nothing. It absolutely means nothing. That's what he's saying. That is what he's saying. Because many individuals want to look at this verse and they want to pick abstract views. They want to be quote unquote theoretical. And they say, well, I can do this. I can do that. What do I need Jesus for? And the Messiah is making it very clear. So you look at your 
your medal and your gold plates on your chest. You look at the trophies that's standing on your uh, your treasure drawer. You're looking at the fact that you helped someone because they were in need. You did this all outside of me. You are nothing. For out of breath and out of vapor, you are gone. So I want to be pragmatic because I think the master is being pragmatic here as well. It's not just the fact that in abiding in him, we preach the love of God. But in that love, in that love is a miracle. And it's a special work that I think a lot of people take for granted. How can one who is from birth and have a disposition to want to do his own thing, all of a sudden love a man they've never seen and keep his commandments? That is strange. So therefore, our master in being pragmatic to them is saying, do not think or lose focus for a second that without me you can do anything. In fact, some might be thinking if I were obedient from the time I was a child. So they may render this argument. You know, when I was a little kid and my mom told me to do this, I did it. When all the kids were getting in trouble, I didn't get in trouble. I was a good little boy or girl. And then there's another one who's, when they've grown up, they have achieved much. And so they also presumed that maybe I can just buy my way out of anything. Money makes the world go around, right? The master showed outside of me, all that means nothing. And the first example... I give you the aspect of the rich young ruler. He said, I observe everything up to my youth. Why do I still lack? The master gave him a commandment. He goes away weeping and crying. In the second example, I gave you Simon the sorcerer. If you want to take notes, the story of Simon the sorcerer is in Acts 8, 9 to 25. For the sake of time, again, I cannot read it. But if you want to take a note of that, take a look at that. And with Simon the sorcerer, he thought, well, maybe I could just buy this. Or better yet, Peter, you pray for me. See the attitude. The aspect of what the Messiah is showing here, especially to his disciples, is that don't lose sight. Yes, I will be gone. But it's important that I'm leaving. Because in the work of redemption, the helper is coming to seal your faith. And he's going to bring to remembrance everything I taught you. But not just you. Because when you preach and you spread the word of God to the people, the spirit will be at work. You never know when he will be at work because the wind comes and blows as it pleases. But he will be at work. 
It's amazing now because as we come now to verse number six, it is the father's hand that we saw by verse number two. Clips the branches. And those who are pruned by their attachment in chapter 14, we understand it is the spirit that is allowing this. But then the vine, the actual true vine, and all that is being said and done, the one that's life-giving, is Christ. It's amazing that just in the first six verses of chapter 15, we're seeing the harmony of the Godhead. But I also want to make sure you denote, and I want this to be apparent, because when Pastor Jason returns back from here, this is not going to be anything new that I'm teaching you. This may be an introduction of sorts. And I know I'm, I've been told I do a lot of introductions. But nonetheless, they provide foundation. I always feel that details, though important, you want to provide a good foundation. But nonetheless, everything I'm saying here is going to be heard again. You may hear it in a different version. Or it may be said a different way, but it's all the same. But the harmony that the Messiah is showing these first six verses is very apparent and very clear. Now, with that being said, he taught his disciples the understanding of what it means to abide in him. And for us, we're taught the obedience to his word. But of which in us abiding in the work of the Lord. I cannot stress enough how it's so important that in just this love, in just this love that we have for him, it's going to be an outflow from all that we do. So the, the apostles are very, very keen on making sure as they were moved by the Spirit, they teach us about that true love. John stated in chapter 4, 1 John, And in this commandment we have for him, that the one who loves God shall also love his brother also. By verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts off fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. By John chapter 5, by verse number 3 in 1 John. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments is not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Now, this is easy. Uh, this is encouraging in a sense. Remember, the master gave a warning. Because to those who want to take to the argument of the rich young ruler. Or operate like Simon the sorcerer. Then like verse number two, the father as a vine dresser, he will clip those who purported to have abided in him and falsely claim and kept those commandments. 
So the father will take away that branch. And what does the master state that awaits them? If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them up, they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. He gives them an understanding that there are individuals who claim or purport that they know me. The Father will show you truly and well who they are and how they operate. But the encouragement to us, to end on a positive note, or I want to make sure we're ending with an encouragement. The encouragement to us is that we are given a blessing when we consider the love we have for God. But your love is not something that you generate or that came from the aspect of you willing it in your mind. As you move day by day and you come to various aspects of life, you might be pondering and wondering, I may not want to do this because it violates the law of God. That's love. He gives you a commandment to do and you want to do it. When individuals will claim certain things, you don't have to say it to their face. You know, you don't be given the time and setting. You do not need to boast yourself in a particular manner. But you can consider in the back of your mind, you know, that's not the way God claimed it out to be. He said his hand and his will is at work. There's no outside forces that could have done it. And you never know. An individual might ask you a question. You're able to shed light how God is able to perform in that, how God's able to perform in that situation. And you know what? More times than not, you'll find out they'll say, hmm, I never heard it said that way. Well, one, that's because only about maybe 5% of most is reformed in the entire state, um, entire con uh, constructs of the United States. But the other thing is the fact that not a lot of people understand the work in the hand of God at work in the world. So for you to believe this, that is love from him. That is a blessing. Your ascent to the knowledge in your faith is a part of the workings of Christianity. You must continue to grow. But the working in regards to you being attached to the vine, that's the work of the, of the spirit itself. You have nothing to do with that. And when you see as your life moves and you're noticing little aspects of your life change here and here, Think about the hand of God in your life. Because I can tell you right now, we're seeing and reading and hearing about the apostles' life, but that's only after the master has been glorified. John was not writing this while the master had not done the resurrection. So all this aspect of all this we're hearing is after. But you know what's amazing? The Messiah never lied because he said in chapter 14, when I bring the helper, all this will become to remembrance of you. And when it comes to remembrance, they were moved to write it. So they see the master's hand at work. They see the words of the master's hand at work in their lives. How much do we 
have to see that. So consider that as you move on throughout the week. How has God's hand moved through your life? And I'm not saying everything good. I'm not saying everything bad. What I'm asking is when you do certain things or you see certain things, do you think God's hand's at work? And if so, how has your faith been strengthened by it? Let's pray.